When kids just won't listen, parents often feel stuck between two choices, to give in or get angry. It's exhausting. We give you the top techniques directly from the experts, helping you on your path to a more peaceful, respectful, and joyful life with your kids. Today we have a leading expert in emotional development to talk about getting kids to listen. She is Alyssa Blask Campbell. She's also the CEO of a company called Seed and Sow LLC. She speaks to people around the world. She hosts a podcast called Voices of Your Village, and she's been featured in publications like The Washington Post, Kids VT, and Family Education. Alyssa is deeply passionate about nurturing emotional intelligence in children. She says it's never too early or too late to start. Alyssa's show up as you are approach welcomes people into her village to get support at all ages and stages shame free. This episode touches on the importance of community support and we both shared some personal conflict resolution strategies that worked from our personal experience. For any of us in tough situations with kids, Alyssa reminds us to look beyond the behavior. And today we're going to learn what kids are really communicating by figuring out their secondary emotion and the unmet need. It's a good show. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get started with Alyssa Blask Campbell. Alyssa Blask Campbell, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. What is it that you love most about working with kids? Oh, man. It's really hard to choose just one thing. But I think for me, the thing about kids that I love most is that they make me so present. Like, you, in order to really show up and, like, be with them, you have to be present. And it takes me away from, like, all the distractions that are happening in life. And I love that. I love walking away being like, oh my gosh, I just played with Legos for 20 minutes or just created something. And I feel like so often in our adult lives, we're doing things on our to-do list all the time. And it's hard to just like slow down and play. And kids really bring that out. And I love that. Interesting. You, you said slow down and play. And, and some people see play as hectic and takes takes all their energy. You know, it's it's... It winds them up, but um, but to have that other perspective of it should be, it can be quite quite relaxing, you know. Yeah, and sometimes it is energetic, you know. Sometimes maybe I am running around. I guess by slowing down, I mean like being present. And so often in life, like just before we got on this call, I was doing the dishes and listening to a podcast and thinking about what I was packing for my trip this weekend. I'm in so many places at one time, except for the place that I'm actually in. <laughs> and when I'm playing with kids, it does feel like I'm slowing down because I'm being present to them. What would you say is the main thing that you have learned from working with them? Hmm. But they really want to like be in community and they want to connect. 
that everybody wants to like feel seen and heard and that sometimes we find this out from them because they're crying and expressing their emotion or maybe it's because they're hitting or they're saying this morning I had a DM from a mama whose little girl last night said, I don't love you and I'm never going to love you again. And really what that little girl was saying was, I don't feel connected to you right now and I want to feel connected, right? And I think for, for me, like we as adults learn to stifle so many of our feelings over the years and we learn what we're allowed to express where and when and how. And kiddos don't have that yet. They're so free. And it, it's just this constant reminder that like, when we can peel back the social programming and the biases that we've like laid on over the years, we can get back to this core of just like allowing ourselves to feel and connect with each other. When you say that, that they want community, how, how are you, how would you describe that? What does community mean? I'm sorry. Will you repeat that again? Well, you mentioned uh, that they want community and they want to connect. And I'm asking, mm-hmm. how how are you defining community? What is it, what is it that they want in in community? What does that look yeah, like? Yeah, well, we as we as humans are social beings, and I think we, when we're looking at tiny humans, I I ran an infant classroom for a little while, right? So I get to see like kids just like ripe before we have a whole lot of social programming laying on top of them, and it was incredible to see like one child cry and another child crawl over and get that kiddo's lovey and bring that to them to help support them. And of course we like fostered a lot of this through emotion coaching and all that jazz, but there was this desire to connect with each other that when one kid cries, the other kids are looking and they want to know like, how can I help them? How can I, in my mind, like be in community, be a part of their village. And then I think as we get older, so often what I'm hearing from folks is like, I don't know how to find my village. I don't know how to connect. Um, Malcolm Gladwell just wrote a book uh, of research called Talking to Strangers and how we've really moved away from this skill set of being able to connect with each other. And I think, you know, there could be a lot of things playing into it. But when I look at kiddos, I just see this innate desire and curiosity for one another and what they're doing. And you can see it when a kid, like, goes up to another kiddo they haven't met before on a playground just to play. And how often, I mean, if you were an adult in a grocery store, you probably wouldn't walk up to another adult and just be like, hey, like, what are you doing here? How's your day going? But we see this in kiddos. And I love that. Yeah, I I think I can remember the one time in my life where I sat down beside another stranger at, at lunch. I was at a restaurant by myself and there was another person there by themselves. And I thought, I can go sit with that person. I did it once, you know, ever. <laughs> like right. yeah. when that opportunity is and available how did it feel? all the time. Oh, we, oh, we had a wonderful conversation, you know, talked for an hour. It was great. It's great. Yeah. And it's, but it feels vulnerable. I think for a lot of folks, um, that we like have this wall up that we're not sure how to do it anymore. How to just like say hi and interact with strangers in real life. Uh, But kiddos don't have that. I mean, I was just the other day sitting at a coffee shop and every person that walked into the coffee shop, this little toddler was just waving at. That's amazing. Oh yeah, They're the best. I love that. Hi, hi, hi. Um, So 
staying with this topic for a minute, the the village, the community in our world, um, at least you're in America, I'm in America, and I, I don't know what it looks like in your in your city and state, but um, do you have a, a solution or a suggestion that you offer people that's, that's is it just talk to your neighbors or, or do you envision um, new types of communities being built and, and uh, villages, a, a new village mindset coming up somehow? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. So um, I started Stephen So in this effort to, and our tagline is cultivating the village. I, in our podcast, this voices of your village this is obviously something that like for me is at the core of this is that we, so many folks are doing this in silos, just as you were saying that, you know, folks aren't necessarily talking to their neighbors and families are doing this a lot alone. And I think that there are a couple of things factoring into it. We have more, um, families now than ever before that have uh, all parents in the household working. Um, and so I think that there can be an added stressor there of like just finding time to be able to support one another and even just connect with each other. You feel like you're in this grind of like getting up and getting the kid out the door to childcare to school and going to work and coming home and getting dinner on the table and doing bedtime and, you know, than all the things that, that happen at night to get ready for the next day. And so I think it can feel hard to connect with each other. Uh, I think also it is that I think there's this comparison of our messy inside mm. to someone else's curated outside. Like you scroll through Instagram or Facebook and you're seeing a snapshot of somebody's very curated life, <laughs> right? Like that, there were uh, maybe 1,042 pictures that went into the one photo that you saw in the perfect moment that was shared. And you might look at that and be like, Oh man, like how do they have it all together? And I think there's just so much insecurity floating around. Um, that it's like, Ooh, I hope that these people don't find out that I don't have all the answers. And so there's, I think a fear of being vulnerable with each other because we're afraid that, they're going to figure out that, yeah, sometimes we yell at our kids because we get frustrated. And sometimes we make mistakes on this journey and that our kids aren't perfect and we aren't perfect. And I think that's scary uh, to acknowledge and be vulnerable about. And I think when we can start to open that door and when one person can share like, man, I had such a hard morning today getting out the door I can't believe we made it to childcare with clothes on our kids and whatever. Like, I think when one person can open that door, it opens the door for other folks. So I think there's this idea that it's going to be this big, powerful thing or you have to like invite somebody over for dinner or like have a play date. And I think it's actually in those small moments where we just acknowledge that we aren't perfect and it opens the door for other folks to be vulnerable too. And vulnerability is what breeds trust and connection. And I think like that from there is where our village grows. So are there, when you talked about uh, silos, um, what do you see on that kind of village growing that, that's, that is most excites you? Oh, I think like in our village, one of my favorite things, we have a Facebook group that's free to everybody. And it's been really cool to watch it like grow at first. It was just like me popping in and <laughs> starting conversation and being vulnerable. And as it's grown, 
now it's every single day people popping in and saying, hey, I either just like need to know I'm not alone in this hard thing or it's, hey, has anyone ever experienced this before? We're going through it and I'm looking for some advice or support. And then it's everybody showing up in our, it's been really beautiful to watch. So many folks showing up and coming from a place of empathy and compassion of like, hey, I don't know if this would work for everybody, but this has worked for our family or um, really just getting to know each other through this, but from a place of vulnerability again. And we opened that door and people have just continued to walk in because I think there's such a need for it. And that's what fills my cup is that it really does feel accessible and your village doesn't have to be your neighbor. Uh, sometimes it will be. Maybe it will be somebody helping literally in your everyday life. But maybe your village is someone that you can turn to online and say, hey, have you walked through this before? Um, that you feel a connection with. And I think that's what like excites me the most. And for children who, let's say, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, who... Um, don't have the online access. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of solutions do you see for them to find find a village community support? Yeah, I think they're the best at doing it if we just let them do it. Um, they are going to find their village at school if we don't stifle it, if we are stepping in with like, oh, I don't think you should play with him. Or if when they say like, hey, I want to join band or I'd like to try out this camp or I think when we can work to make that happen, which we can't always, but when we can, it gives them another like in to community where at that camp or at that soccer game or at that band practice or at that ballet practice, they are going to connect with the other people around them. They're so good at it if we don't stifle it. If we aren't saying things in their presence, like when they do things that are weird because they're kids and they are so down with just being themselves, when they do those like weird things or things that are, we might find as adults like annoying, if we don't stifle that, then they will keep shining and they'll keep connecting with people. It's when we step in and we're saying things like, oh, like, I don't know, that's so weird. Or like, you, do you really want to play soccer? Like when we step in and we take that away from them, that's when they start to second guess and say like, oh, should I? Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't show up as myself. And I, I think when we can really like pay attention to our own social programming and biases and self-regulate so that we can allow them to flourish, they will naturally do it. We are social beings as humans. What is a common thread when you have people coming on to your Facebook group or wherever your uh, forums and support mm -hmm. groups are, what's a common thread that you're hearing people saying, this is, this is the time and place. This is the area where connection is low when I'm, when I can't, I'm having trouble communicating. And also what, what's, what's a common best response if, if you have answers to either of those? Yeah. Let me think about that. Might have to crunch a lot of data there, but yeah, I I think the place that people feel the lowest connection is around their kids not being perfect. I think especially like oh, in this like respectful parenting community and 
intentional parenting, which a lot of our folks are like coming to us through that. Um, you know, my work is in emotional development and responding with intention and all that jazz. Uh, there's this idea of perfection and that that means you never yell at your kids or last night I had um, a mama reach out and she had just like broke down. She had a rough day and her kid said something that was just annoying and she started sobbing. The mom did. And then she was like, oh, I like let her, you know, she was seeing me cry and I don't want her to feel responsible for my feelings and all this stuff that we talk about. And I was like, oh, no, babe, you let her know that you were human and you have feelings. And that is part of being a human. That is totally rad that she got to see. She's not the only one in this family that has feelings. And then what you do from there matters. That, like, she's not in charge of helping you feel calm. You get to do that on your own. You have your own toolbox to pull from. But there's this fear of of imperfection and of letting it show. And that's where I think most folks that are coming into our group connect over that they they don't want to let other people know that they're not doing it perfectly. And yet everybody is doing it imperfectly. <laughs> And just often behind closed doors and, and in their silos. And yeah, so I guess the, the best response I would say is like, you're not alone and you're doing enough. You are enough. It is not about perfection. It's about intention and progress. And there's, there's never going to be a day where we walk away and we're like, I was a perfect teacher or a perfect parent today. Um, and even if you maybe have that as a, like once in a while, it's not going to happen the next day. <laughs> and it, it, if it is, maybe we aren't taking enough risks or paying attention enough. What are some, what are some other ways that you see people handling that fear of imperfection that, that works for them? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know that works for them. Um, I, like, I see a lot of people handling it, but not necessarily that works for them. Um, How do you mean? I think a lot of folks, what they're doing is just not talking about it and pretending that it doesn't exist. Okay. And then like sitting there feeling guilty and full of shame. And then when we talk about it, even, to, oh my gosh, shame cannot thrive when we talk about it when we bring light to it because then what happens is other people say oh man me too and it relieves that shame and you get to find out you're not alone and I think that's the most powerful thing the hard part is that it has to start with one person when we all walk around like oh yeah no I've got it all this is great (laughs) uh we're doing everything great uh when everybody's walking around with that facade on then nobody's opening up and it starts with one human being able to say like, Oh, I'm having a tough day today. This thing was really hard. And for the person on the other end, not to try and fix their problem, but to just be a good listener. The topic of your show here, how to get kids to listen is really like it also with adults, no matter who you're talking to, if we want them to listen, we have to start by being a good listener. And when somebody comes, it, say it's a kid coming and they're sharing something hard or they're having um, an emotional expression like a tantrum or they're hitting or they're throwing things or they're yelling. What this comes back to for me is being able to listen. Like, what are they really saying? They're not saying, 
you're the worst mommy and I don't love you, even if that's what's coming out of their mouth, what they're saying is, man, you set that boundary for me and I didn't like it and I'm mad at you. Or I'm really sad that I don't get to do this thing that I want to do. And I don't know what else to say or do right now. But when we can actually listen to each other rather than just jumping in to try and fix each other's problems or to try and solve this, it's a game changer. So how is that done? If if the child is saying, you're the worst and I don't love you, and uh, yeah. you know, I'm hearing that and I'm, hey, I listened, that's what they said. Maybe I even took notes and I'm looking at that line over and over <laughs> in front of me. Um, what What are some techniques to to read between the lines there. Totally. So what you're listening to when you listen to those words is the behavior and the behavior, if you think of it like an iceberg or we have a visual where we have like um, a series of rings and the outer ring is behavior. And then beneath that is the secondary emotion. So if the behavior is the yelling, I don't love you and you're the worst mommy, beneath that is anger or frustration. And then there's a root emotion beneath that. And in this case, it was disappointment. And then at the very core is an unmet need. And sometimes the unmet need is a sensory need. It might be a need to move their body. It might be that they're tired or they're hungry. Um, I know this is why we have terms like hangry. Uh, it, it's it, an actual, when we break down the sensory systems, I won't get too nerdy on you here, but the interceptive sensory system, which is one of eight of them, is what's responsible for our cues of like, I feel hot or cold or hungry or tired, et cetera. And it's very closely tied to your emotions. So when you are feeling hungry, it's really hard to regulate your emotions and like neurologically. And so for kiddos, I'm trying to figure out like, huh, what are they really communicating to me? I'm trying to listen to that, to like, what's the emotion and what's the unmet need? Maybe the unmet need is uh, a need for connection. Maybe we haven't seen each other all day and they don't know how to say, hey, I really missed you today. Or I felt really overwhelmed at school today and I just need some downtime. And now you're asking me to do all these things when we walk in the house and I just need to chill for a minute they might not know how to say that. And so for me, when I'm listening, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, I see the behavior. The behavior doesn't mean a whole lot to me. I want to know what's the emotion beneath that behavior and what's the unmet need. And sometimes it's it's really uh, the key here is us self-regulating, me being able to like pause and take a deep breath. And even like sometimes I'll have phrases or mantras that I'm repeating that are like, in this instance, it could be like, they don't actually mean that they don't love you. They're feeling something hard. And just as a reminder to myself that it's not actually about me. And if I just react with my emotions in that moment, nobody's listening to anybody. But if I can regulate myself, then I can really listen to them and figure out how to best support them moving forward. And it doesn't mean that forever I'm going to let them yell things like, you're a mean mommy. What it means is that in that moment, I'm going to meet their need and their emotional need. And then later, man, when you were really upset earlier, you were saying really mean things to me. I wonder what you could do instead when you're feeling disappointed or if you feel like you need more time to hang out with me and you feel like you didn't get it today. 
I wonder what you could do or you could say. And now we get to have a conversation, but we're not doing that till way later. In the moment, I'm just trying to meet their emotional need. Right. And I'd like to point out that if a kid is telling you they don't, they don't love you or they hate you, at least they're telling you. And that's, that's a big step up from a, a child who, or anybody who won't talk, won't talk to you. That's, that, that shows, you know, a true disinterest sometimes. And at least that's how I feel. If someone, if someone's taking the time to tell me, you know, that they're upset with me, well, that, that means that, uh, we can have a conversation about it. Yeah, it really, that comes back to like sensory processing. And, uh, for instance, I'm the human that would say like, um, oh, I would like to be yelling at my mom mm-hmm. that I don't love her and whatever. I'm a very expressive person. I can process very quickly. Um, my sensory systems operate pretty optimally. And then my husband has slower sensory processing. And so for him, if we're in conflict, say, like, I could fill all that silence like it's nobody's business. And my husband goes quieter and quieter and quieter the more I fill that silence because he's working so hard to process what I'm saying. And so part of this is figuring out, like, who's that kid? If their sensory processing takes a little bit longer, then they might shut down. They might just be... Um, like it, it can appear as reserved or calm, but inside they can be exploding. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Figuring out the different kind of personalities or ways of handling conflict or, or stress and, and recognizing that we do it differently and we're going to need different tools. Um, Mm-hmm. And how important it is to yeah. look at our own, how we're showing up because yeah, if we, if we're filling up all the space, for example, um, because that's our, we're, cause we're capable of it or that's our habit or whatever, um, looking at how that might play into a dynamic where someone else is missing out on their opportunity to, to process and, and engage. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, just personally from our experience, like once we learned how to actually have conflicts in a way that benefited both of us, it was a game changer for our conflict resolution. Um, rather than like me feeling the silence and Zach going quiet, now he'll say like, hey, I'm going to take some space. And sometimes that means like he's going to take a long shower or he's going to go for a walk or we're just going to be in separate rooms for a little bit. Or we might be like in the kitchen cooking dinner, but we're just not talking for a little while. And for me, it was really hard to learn to do that. And I had to find outlets for myself in that time where he needed space. Mm. So sometimes it's me turning to, I have like my best friend who he has like, okay, like, sure, you can turn to her if you need to like vent. Um, Or I journal. I can write about it and like getting it out in that facet is also helpful for me. But I had to figure out what worked for me too. We, I couldn't just do what worked for him. Right. Yeah, putting it in writing is uh, is probably one of my favorite techniques. Not not just journaling, but also if there really is an issue that needs to be discussed, whether it's with the kid or with a partner or anybody, um, you know, pen and paper can't hurt. And <laughs> and it's like yeah. that idea of look, I wrote it down. We can we can come back to this in a week. You know, it's it's here on this piece of paper forever. And so 
whoever is feeling like they have to make a hundred points in a minute. Um, it kind of takes that burden off of them. Or, or if someone is venting, a child is going off on you when they see that you're taking notes and you're, and you're saying, Oh yeah. Oh, that kind of, you said that three times and now this is a new point. Um, that really can serve to diffuse, uh, a lot. Well, they can feel hurt. They're like, oh, you're paying attention to me. Right. Right. And then, and then when you come back a day later and say, so how many of these things, you know, I'm, I'm open to re I'm open to revisiting these things. And they might say, well, eh, half of that stuff, I was just blowing steam and, and, you know, here's something that, but here's the nugget. Here's what I was really getting to. One of my favorite yeah. tools for any conflict. Yeah, it's a Gottman tool. Hmm. I like it. I know you have a lot of resources that you offer people. Um, can we talk about some of those resources that you offer as well as, you know, places where you're pointing people, um, favorite authors, et cetera, of yours that you think are doing really okay. great work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anything by Dan Siegel, mm -hmm. I'm here for. Um, the book Self-Reg by Dr. Shanker is my most recommended book to any human, okay. <laughs> whether you interact with kids or not. Um, Mind in the Making by Ellen Galinsky is another classic. Um, she's fantastic. And beyond that, it really depends on like, I guess like if you're in a classroom or you're a parent or whatever, my tools would then differ. Um, because while the emotion coaching is going to be the same wherever you are, the environment will change. So if you are a teacher and you have 20 kids, the way that you set up your environment and the environment that a kiddo um, might have to learn to be in, it's going to be different than if you're at home with a couple kids. Uh, and so after that, I would say like I have different tools for different folks, but those are my three favorites, Dan Siegel, Felfreg, and Ellen Zlinski. And then if you're like on Instagram, um, there are a bunch of handles that I think are are really helpful in figuring out kind of like where you're coming from and what your biases are. And so much of this, we people come to the table. I have a program called Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, and it's a parent support program in figuring out how to support your child's emotional development. And so many folks come because they're like, oh, these tantrums, like how do I make them stop or what do I do with them? And what they end up finding out really is about themselves. Um, I co-created the set method and it has five components and only one of them is adult child interaction. The other four are about us because you could have this perfect script and you could be so ready to respond to a kid, but if in the moment their behavior is triggering you or you've had a long day or um, maybe you just really need to get out the door to get to work or you're trying to get out of your classroom and you have 18 other kids waiting on this kid to pull it together. Yeah. It, it, accessing that script is a whole different ball game. Um, 
So yeah, I, the holistic psychologist is a good one over on Instagram for doing your own work. Um, Thriving Little is another one that I like. Um, yeah, so okay. I feel like those are two solid ones are, that, that could apply to all folks. Tell us about your projects and what they look like totally. and, and why. I'm, I, that's always one of my favorite things to understand is yeah. why, why a podcast, why why the entrepreneurial ventures? Totally. Um, yeah. So I had the privilege of working in a few different schools and doing research and getting to create our own emotion processing method and research it. And then I found myself with like all this information and stuff that I'd learned and, and things that I've had access to that so many people didn't have access to. And I just wanted to share it with the world. I, so I started Seed and Sew and it really just started with like, here's a website that was like very minimal. I would write like a weekly blog post where I would just put some information out to the world and uh, do some like Instagram posts, just trying to like get some information out. And then pretty quickly folks were asking for a podcast and um, yeah, so we like bootstrapped that and figured it out and now it's in over 91 countries around the world and uh, we have this delicious global village and it's all listener driven content. So for me, I grew up in a small town in Western New York, like a small farm town and we didn't have access to a lot of resources and I want, when I started the podcast, like I wanted folks like my mom raising kids two hours from the city in like farmland to have access to the same information that somebody in New York city would have. And, um, I, so the podcast was like a way for me to make that information accessible. And I never dreamt that it was like, go as global as it's gone. I really pictured like, Oh, we can serve folks all throughout the U S with, you know, this information. Um, but yeah, that's been a happy accident. And then we have, yeah, I have the, my Instagram, feed.am.so that I post regularly there and uh, our Facebook village. And then we have some online classes. So we have a, a sleep program. I used to do sleep consulting mm-hmm. back in the day, largely because like you can't do this work if you're sleep deprived. And I kept finding that in early childhood over and over and over that, uh, Parents were exhausted, kids were exhausted, and it's just you it's just from like a foundational standpoint. When you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sleep is uh, right at that base. So, uh, getting getting that and getting that in an emotionally supportive way uh, is like our whole game there. That I want to figure out why is this child sleeping and how do we best support them. Um, and then we have tiny human stick emotions which is uh, now it's broken up into three separate classes, an infant toddler, preschool, pre-K, and then a five and beyond for folks to help build emotional intelligence in their tiny humans. I used to like travel and present, um, but I'm presently growing my own tiny human and uh, just don't have the Mm -hmm. physical capacity to continue to travel and present. And so we wanted to make that presentation available to folks online, which is what the class is. And then um, 
I do an annual mama's getaway weekend, which is like a retreat weekend for moms to dive like deep into this work, uh, kind of like a conference for moms. Cool. Yeah. And it's specifically for moms right now because I, we dive into topics that are specific to moms that like, because of the evolution of uh, us as humans, that women historically played, you know, the at-home child-rearing role. And in a lot of families, as even as we're moving to more working moms, or at least the option for that if you want it, uh, still a lot of the mental load falls on moms and mm-hmm. um, the child-rearing aspect. So we, it's, it's, designed specifically for moms to be able to dive into their own emotions about all that job. Yeah, I can hear um, throughout our conversation, you make references to our evolutionary history and, um, you know, who who we are as, as well, animals, um, as, as yeah. creatures. And I think that's such an important part of the conversation that um, when that's left out, <laughs> which is which is pretty easy to do it's it's easy to to gloss over and assume that we're all just um you know popped out perfectly formed and and that, that might contribute might contribute to that fear of imperfection is is you know basic not understanding of of biological diversity whether that's between the sexes or just what makes different people think differently um having a having a handle on that oh is so important um so I appreciate anybody who's pointing to that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just like fascinated by the systems of it all. Like how like neuroscience is really fascinating to me. Obviously, like all of our emotions are derived from neuroscience. And so, you know, when you, if there's a reason it's called a feeling, uh, you literally feel it throughout your body and cortisol might be pumping through you and all that jazz. And that fascinates me because it's truly like, it's all, it's science. And then we mix in the social programming and how that informs how the science shows up in our body. It's just fascinating to me. And we're looking at it from a perspective of us as animals. (laughs) Yeah. Have you had, do you find that's a hard sell? Do you think that, is that, tough to to get into conversation sometimes for you yeah for sure i would say like it's not a conversation i would dive into with someone like at the grocery store (laughs) sure um it's it's more like oh when someone is like presenting and someone else wants to get nerdy about it i'm here for Mm -hmm. it um but yeah i think largely what we're bringing up consistently is that everybody has feelings and that for so many folks, your feelings are controlling your reactions Um, and that it doesn't have to be that way. And so when we break it down, you know, all that could be said in a very different way about us being animals and um, really getting into the neuroscience and all that. But when we break it down like that, I think everyone's like, yeah, dude. (laughs) Yes. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, I do have a visceral reaction. Yeah, it's hard to... Hard to argue with the however many years of, of evolution and, and science are behind, yeah, emotions and, and decision-making. Yeah. Uh, well, is there, before I let you go, is there anything else that you wished we talked about? 
Any parting thoughts? I think I just want to let, yeah, I think I just want to let folks know that like, A, you're going to make mistakes on this journey and that's okay. And that B, if we really want kids to listen, if that's our goal is to have like obedient children, then I want to look at why, like what's our fear behind that? Um, Maybe we're afraid that they aren't going to grow up to be respectful of people around them or Maybe we're afraid that if we aren't in control, we aren't sure what this picture will look like. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we're afraid of repeating patterns from our own childhood. Because I think so often when we are focused on like getting kids to listen to us, it's actually coming from a place of fear. And when we can dive into what that fear is, we can get real down and dirty with this work and really start to shift like, Maybe instead of trying to get kids to listen, we can move towards a place of like, how do we connect with each other so that we can work in collaboration with one another? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that, you know, even even the phrase getting them to listen for so many people, that actually means getting them to do something that I want them to do. And it's like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the word itself is is almost kind of, turned upside down to say, well, wait a minute, that's, there's a big difference between listening and, um, following orders. So, um, totally. it's, it's all about, that's it's a great all point. about how we approach the problem there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that's what I would love. And I would love for folks to come on over and join our village and we got more support for you on this journey. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to go check it out right now and we'll put links to everything we mentioned. Um, sounds like you have some really great, great, great content for everybody. Um, Thanks. Well, it fills my heart. Yeah. Well, Alyssa, um, I really enjoyed the conversation and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, we will see everybody next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.